This is Leaked Lunch with Isabella Kamitska, the Fly on the Wall podcast that brings you to the dining table. In this week's episode, I invite Diana Choileva, founder and chief economist of Enodo Economics, to La Familia restaurant in Chelsea. We discuss her specialist area of research, which is China, what it was like setting up shop alone after a long stint at Lombard Research, and her experience with command economics in former communist Bulgaria. The bill came to £132.17. Is that fair enough? How do I, have I mispronounced that as well? <laughs> Easy. You know, if you, yeah. Uh, of course, Bulgarian Cyrillic, when my documents were made years ago, they used the French transcription, so yeah. CH. But it should be said Shoileva, but again, my Shoileva. mom will be the only one who will be <laughs> upset. <laughs> no, it's funny because, like, obviously I'm Polish, so I, I, when I see an Eastern European name, I try to do it, do it the Polish way, but that's not always correct because everything is different. But anyway, we are in, um, in Chelsea. We are in the La Familia Italian restaurant, which was recommended to me, mainly because I knew there were two rooms, one noisy and one a bit less noisy. Um, I'm very excited to be here with you because we've been in touch for a long time um, and I think you know I've always found your work fascinating you used to be at Lombard you're an economist number one for those who don't know you um, but tell it tell our listeners maybe a little bit about your background so how did you come to be where you are today which is the founder economist at Enodo Economics well uh, when I was on the board of uh, a charity called Cardboard Citizens that I have supported here in the UK for 15 years now, they asked me for some reason to present myself by saying what I wanted to be as a child. And I thought, ah, that's a good way to start. So I'm going to tell you the story that way. Okay. When I was a child in communist Bulgaria, I wanted to become a detective when I grew up. I read a lot of crime books and of course they were safe territory in those uh, years. We weren't allowed to read everything and I was fascinated. But then I was 14, 15 when the Berlin Wall fell and of course the opportunities in front of me were endless. So I ended up studying in the UK to become an economist and actually being an economist is... Uh, quite similar to being a detective. That's so interesting. And you studied economics here in the UK, not in uh, Bulgaria? Both. Ah. I did my bachelor's at the University of Sofia in the very first years. Uh, and we had um, an American professor, uh, but <laughs> apart from him, all the other teachers sort of only two or three years ago we're teaching command economics. Well, this is, this is an interesting point because my mother uh, was an economist from the Warsaw School. Of, she learned, uh, she was a master's in economics from the Warsaw School of Economics. And when she came here to the UK, I always found it funny that she never said she was an economist. And I used to say to mummy, mummy, mama, um, why don't you tell her you've got this amazing degree in economics? And she would say to me, no, you don't understand. My economics degree is from communist Poland. It's meaningless. It's worthless. 
I would be embarrassed to tell people in England that my yeah, I have a. Kind of I understand that because you know those teachers, all they did was just read from economics textbooks, which we could have done ourselves. I mean, they they really didn't feel comfortable teaching market economics. So as a result, I realized, and I sort of happened to be lucky enough to go as an exchange student to the University of Oslo for a term while I was doing the Bulgarian degree. And, I, and there was a professor from Harvard at that time giving a, a course, and I went to that course and my eyes were opened. Ah. Uh, and my cousin was doing law at Cambridge, and I went to visit him, and I also visited a few economics uh, lectures. And ah. I thought, oh my God, I really have to go abroad if I want to <laughs> study this subject. That is so, so interesting, because, um, well, we should order. We should have a look at what we um, what's on the menu. But but but, but, but why I say that's interesting is because my mum used to therefore always always say how funny it is twenty years old that her classmates from the Eskaha, you know, um, had got to these amazing sort of positions of power in Poland, and she was like, yeah, but a lot of them have never learned proper like market economics or converted those communist degrees into something, or not necessarily you know, in, in economic fields, but they, they were touting these uh, credentials as if they were one and the same. And um, and no one has really kind of converted them, so to speak. And really what you're saying is a conversion would, is quite necessary if you learn your economics in a command economy structure. I, I think it is. And I was lucky then to do my master's degree at the University of Warwick, ah. which was an eye-opening experience. But I must tell you that actually, uh, I think I became a practicing um, market economist, really learned all my craft when I started working. Oh, interesting. And I was very lucky because I had these three incredible brains uh-huh. and I had the opportunity to work with them one-on-one, which uh, you rarely get depending on where you start your career. So I, straight after university here, I started working for, uh, it was then called Lombard Street Research, which is a a well-known macroeconomic research consultancy based here in London. It was set up by a guy called Tim Congdon, who is a fantastic monetary economist, all my monetary economics, I specialized in monetary, international and domestic monetary economics at Warwick. I learned all my monetary economics from Tim. Uh, I then had someone called Brian Redding, who was the most incredible economist uh, I've I've come across, I've come across in terms of uh, his unconventional mind and way of looking at things. And I started training as an economist on Japan and he was a big expert on Japan and wrote a book called Japan Becoming Collapse in the late 80s, early 90s, a book that people still read to understand what happened afterwards. And then, of course, my my mentor and uh, the economist I worked with for the 16 years of my time at Lombard, Charles Dumas. Oh, yes, of course. Who made me understand how important the direction of causation is in economics and why I love this subject because it's just never boring. You think things are working one way and then just when it's most important, the causation turns the other way around. The outcomes are completely different 
and you have to figure that out. Mm-hmm. So it's like a detective story. Like very that's why much. You, yeah, so very you much. Continuously have to be on the prowl for being misdirected uh, this way or that way because you never know. Well, you're just trying to collect as many pieces of raw information as possible. They are in front of you, clues, mm-hmm. and then you put them into the same coherent picture. And mm-hmm. the more pieces, clues you manage to put, the more confident you get that you have the right story. Uh, and so here I am, more than two decades uh, after um, I graduated as, as an economist, now practicing economist, sitting here about to order some food. In, well, exactly. And uh, <laughs> I want to hear all about Anodo and how you started that. But I think we should order something. Um, it's an Italian restaurant. Part of this podcast is also a kind of informal uh, tour of the restaurant uh, scene. Well, in London, I did do the last one in, in Geneva. So we, we are getting around. Um, so what, what, what do you value? There's a big range of pasta, antipasti, seasonal... Well, this is a lovely restaurant, actually. I think um, it's very nice in the summer because they've got a courtyard on the inside and they've got uh, street uh, tables as well. So we come here, if you know, you know my, my tendency is towards nice home-cooked uh, Italian food. It is, you can't and go the wrong. And the staff here are excellent. Exactly. They were great so far. So what, what do you fancy? I would suggest... I, I mean, I am... Sure. One course or two? Do you have time? Two? I have time for two. On water only, or would you like a glass of wine? I would have a glass of wine if you join no. me. Yes, I would definitely have a glass. <laughs> um, thank you. Well, I mean, that. typically it's wine? just one glass and that's, that's it for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, especially at lunch. So Pinot Grigio I always like. Okay, let's do that. And two Pinot Grigio. Yes, please. And that's the sparkling water already. Perfect. So now we can get to the to the another part to the really interesting stuff. So you were working at Lombard. Uh, where, yes, I where ended up. I think it's fair to say you've got a reputation for being ahead of the curve, but also taking a contrarian view sometimes to the rest of the team. Is that fair? The team was being quite contrarian, especially on like things like China, which is where I first came across you. Well, and the global financial crisis. Mm. Um, I mean, I was lucky because for some reason that no one could remember uh, at the company at that time, I was given China in 2000, towards the end of the year 2000. And that coincided with China joining the World Trade Organization. So I ended up following China for the whole of my career and being sort of one of the first ones one of the first economists to look at it in a comprehensive way and to try and incorporate it into a global story. And so already by 2004, 2005, we came up with uh, the thesis of what we called at the time the Eurasian savings glut and Ben Bernanke popularized it later on as calling it the Asian savings glut, but it wasn't just... um, Uh, Asian, it was Eurasian, Northern Europe as well. And my analysis of the Chinese side of the story was the contribution to what at the time was uh, a contrarian call that culminated in 2006 
um, Charles Duman that I mentioned, and I wrote a book called The Bill from the China Shop, arguing that the global financial crisis was coming. But what I learned um, was that if I have a strong conviction, I shouldn't be afraid to raise my head above the parapet. So it's not being contrarian for the sake of being contrarian. Perfect, yes. Thank you. Thank the you. Just right. yes. For the sake of listeners, there's also some very excellent olives on the table. That I, I love the black ones. Um, yes, so, so it's you, not uh, being contrarian for the sake of being contrarian. Uh -huh. It's um, having the courage to, when you have the confidence, when you have managed to fit a lot of pieces into the same coherent picture, to put your head above the parapet and say, this is what uh, we think is happening and as a result is likely, uh, you know, the future is likely to look this way. Yeah. And this is what I really, really enjoy uh, doing. And then actually over the years, I discovered, I mean, I didn't know I would be good at it, to be honest. <laughs> I had no clue. Um, but I discovered I loved understanding where the world was going and what I was good at is figuring out what is going to be the key driving force and how everything else will fall out from that. And so seeing big turning points in the global economy and not sort of, you know, the next month or the next two months inflation figures. Of course, that can be done with statistical analysis and, you know, but but it's it's not the aspect of economics that uh, interests me. It's more the genuine political economy uh, way of of, of looking uh, at economics as well. So your specialization in China started at Lombard, right? Yeah. Because you saw it as the next big um, trend um, influencer, right? That was. Yes, and actually, I've had one of my best investment calls, um, you know, in the, at the start of my career, because by focusing on China and seeing what they were doing in terms of one being helped by WTO entry, but the huge investment splurge they started, I had a sort of secure, long-term positive call on commodities. And so that was, um, at the time... Um, of course, we had the dot-com bubble burst and a lot of worries. And we were able to say that China was actually going to be extremely important for how the global economy was developing. It was operating on a different cycle, if you'd like, um, politically driven. So early on, we had the, the secular commodity boom story developed, which we called the end of that story in 2011, after the global financial crisis. But um, yes, I, I um, wouldn't say I became a China expert in my first years of following China, because actually, it's a lot of, I mean, you know, yeah. Every time you, you think you, you sort of got somewhere, you discover, oh, yes, please. You discovered that uh, that uh, there is even more to know. Oh yes, but but just when you think mm. you've, you've thank you. you, just when you think you've uh, achieved a certain level of expertise, you realize there's so much more. Ah, fantastic! The wine's here now as thank well. Thank you. So the conversation should get even more interesting. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure about that. Uh, <laughs> here's to the winter of discontent. <laughs>
So, when did you um, start in Odo? I started in Odo in 2016. So, mm -hmm. I, I ended up as chief economist, uh, uh, head of research at uh, Lombard Street, now TS Lombard. And uh, I, you know, as I said, I, I, everyone who knows me would tell you that I'm fiercely independent. And there were a lot of changes at that time, easy if you remember, to, with Mifid and yes. the way that the chips were falling. Uh, my assessment was that actually the independent research providers will have a very hard time, especially those that are sort of, you know, global, but they don't cover every single piece of the world. Yeah. Uh, so we had a situation where the, you know, our typical clients would be fund managers. They would have to, they made the choice of paying out of P&L and all of a sudden started uh, <laughs> looking after the pennies and being very, um, yes, making sure that they were getting value for their money. Uh, on the other side of the equation, the investment banks were still underpricing research because they would give their written research produced by a ginormous team globally at prices that were definitely uh, subsidized. I mean, this, this is interesting because I, I, some of our listeners might not remember this or have um, you know, appreciated it when it was happening. But this was a big deal in the world of research, the method. Uh, and speaking as an economist, it mm. was one of those unique moments where both the demand for a service and the supply of that service were going through a huge upheaval. Now, my assessment at the time was that the likes of Lombard Street Research and BCA and so on, which are global macro, uh, independent providers, uh, will find it harder to compete with the likes of, you know, JP Morgan and Goldman Sachs, who were still um, dominant but also underpricing their research but my view was that if you get china right uh, and you get us right you get 90 percent of what goes on in markets and even though i've always been an actually you know i've also analyzed the us economy over a big chunk of my career uh, at lombard but i thought i could add the most bang for my buck uh, with an analysis of China's economy and how it integrates with the global economy. So I decided to strike it out on my own and set up an auto economics. And um, I thought that after the financial crisis, there was no way to get markets right and where the economy was going and everything was going without including the geopolitics and the politics. So I expanded the team in that direction, including technology. And now we have a team of um, with combined experience of over 250 years covering China from all of those angles. Fantastic group of experts that uh, I have known over the years. And I have to say, you know, sort of I had another huge uh, uh, learning curve in understanding um, aspects of China that I, I wasn't uh, familiar with or, or looked at when I was you know, a global economist with China as being one of the countries I followed. I mean, um, I really want to get into the details of China because you just put out this amazing report that you shared with me, which is very fascinating and very detailed. <laughs> In fact, so detailed I haven't finished it yet. But what I like is the kind of, you, I guess you're, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but you're looking at it from a very big picture 
perspective, but also on a micro level, the kind of cultural stuff and and this I was reading, you know, like the um, I've forgotten what it's called now, the uh, the Chinese community vision thing. Uh, what is it? The um, I didn't know about that. Like the she perspective. What is it? Um, the destiny of humans. Oh, oh, oh. Um. I know what you mean. There's so many acronyms, so many descriptions in the Chinese come up. It's the community of common destiny. That's the one. Mm. I mean, that's really... I, I do think these days, the way you consume news, even if it is your area of expertise or you're supposed to be focusing on this, I think if you're a kind of macro trip investor, you will miss these little nuances. You won't be as au fait with the perspective of the Chinese from the bottom up, you see it from the Western, you, know, you only get the top line. People are kind of, it's something I come across all the time. The thing is that the way the Chinese look at the world, the value system is different to the Western one. And exactly. often uh, investors struggle, uh, sort of they look at the issues from their point of view or the prism that they understand. And then they, because they think something is, doesn't make sense or it's not logical then they from their point of view then they don't expect it to happen take for example um, Trump's trade wars you know at that, that time we had seasoned investors like uh, Warren Buffett Paul Tudor Jones etc saying oh this is going to be a storm in a teacup because from an economic point of view it makes no sense clearly the global economy is going to uh, be negatively impacted by what we have observed since then and my point at the time was the economics here for why this is happening don't matter I mean it's the politics and at that time we had reached critical mass politically both in china when she came to power and turned out to be this i mean i call him the strongest communist leader china has had not the strongest since mao because mao presided over a ravaged economy and she presides over the second biggest economy in the world uh, but at that time the focus, of course, you know, because investors are thinking in profit motive and uh, they, they were looking at, at that side of things, but that wasn't the driver. The driver was the politics. And then once Trump came to power and um, started the trade wars, um, then it was crystal clear to me and we started developing Enodo Economics' main thesis of the last three years. Uh, at that time, which we called the Great Decoupling. By the way, Izzy, I spent ages trying to figure out what to call it. <laughs> because I realized that um, it's not enough to call things right. Yes. You have to kind of one coin them. Uh, well, yes, coin them and, and, and also come onto the right fa uh, phrase because it could have been New Cold War, it could have been... And I even bought the domain name, the greatdecoupling.com to make sure that I stake the claim. So going back um, a little bit, I'll let you eat. <laughs> um, this, um, I'm, I'm, I'm very happy you mentioned the research stuff because obviously at the time there was an assumption that the big banks were under, well, undercutting independence 
um, cross-subsidizing from their core activities. But there was also, I think it's fair to say, a, a concern that they were talking their own positions or using it to influence their customers in ways that might favor them. Do you think, you know, and that I would say is an ongoing thing, uh, which, is, which creates the demand for independent research and economics. No, you, absolutely it does. I mean, this is what our clients are saying, that they uh, value the fact that we are independent. And, and it's a necessary condition to get unbiased research. Now, of course, you can be independent and rubbish, and then you, you produce no value. But, this is the, yeah, as an you know, as an, and as an independent researcher, economist, running an independent shop, I think, a precondition is, and, and actually, easier. I've had to say no to very significant amounts of money that came with conditions. And when you're starting your yes, own business entirely on your own, with no help from anywhere, yeah, especially uh, when you're writing about China, uh, especially when you're <laughs> writing about China, taking that difficult yeah. decision to say no to this. So you can keep your independence, you can keep your... It's tough. It is, it is. And, but it's about your integrity and I think, um, I think that's what's fascinating. I mean, we, uh, this week is also the premiere of Wirecard, which is my colleagues were obviously involved, Dan McCrum and Paul Murphy, and we were at the screening on uh, Wednesday um, and it was finally properly revealed that Paul Murphy had been offered $10 million to not write about Wirecard. Wow. <laughs> so well, uh, my, 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 my number was not that much. <laughs> <laughs> but, although he was like, you know, if I'd taken it, if people would have noticed. <laughs> would have had to, like, they give you, it's like Breaking Bad, they give you all this money, but then if you actually start to spend it, it becomes a little bit obvious. Um, but I think there is a, when, I, when we interviewed, when I interviewed George Magnus a few months ago, a couple months ago, um, I mean, we were talking about Chinese influence and the growing sort of assumption that China is buying its way into kind of influencing boardrooms and all sorts of uh, political sort of echelons. Um, do you think, as an independent, that is a concern? And um, obviously, if, if uh, you know, you come from the, from the old command economy world. You're Bulgarian. You know how it was. I mean, you obviously are very neutral in your coverage, and that's what I find great. But you, by kind of also offering that other perspective, have you had people accusing you of being a bit China sympathizer? I don't think you are a China sympathizer. No, I don't think no one's ever said that. In fact, uh, I'd say the label that I don't like that I was given in the early part of my career was a China bear. Um, which was funny because uh, when I, I spent four years in Hong Kong and uh, on my leaving do, um, the head of sales dressed me as a white bear <laughs> on a junk in 31 degrees heat as my leaving, pa leaving party. <laughs> But that, you were always a bear. So well, in the sense that what you, I was trying to... You bear. Well, I was trying to say, look, this system works very differently. And what is going on is, I mean, I, I, I thought, you know, I was very frustrated that the dialogue or the analysis was always either China bear or China bull. 
There was nothing in between. And what was happening was, was China's economy was beginning to have a fundamental impact on everything else in the rest of the world. And often the impact wasn't necessarily straightforward. I'll give you an example. In 2004-05, I was running around Asia saying that Chinese domestic demand growth had slowed down significantly. And investors were saying, well, what do I care? Look at equity markets, they're booming. Look at the US Treasury. And I was saying, Treasury yields. I was saying, well, wait a second. It is actually precisely because the rich kind of physical shortages of energy and um, transport bottlenecks, they couldn't invest their huge savings domestically. Their current account surplus started ballooning. They had to invest it abroad via the central bank because they were pegging the currency. So it poured into... Uh, U.S. Treasury yields kept them, you know, the low bond yields conundrum became very easily explained yeah. and that buoyed asset prices in the region. So saying it was actually precisely because <laughs> domestic So the outcomes were not straightforward necessarily. So I always tried to, uh, to, to analyze China in understanding how it impacts everything else and what would that mean for, for asset markets. Now these days with Anodo, uh, the group of clients that we have is much wider than just the financial industry, largely because we incorporated um, politics and geopolitics, geopolitics in particular because when we started developing the great decoupling team, uh, I split it Again, three T's to, you know, <laughs> thinking about the <laughs> trade war, tech war, and Taiwan war. Yes, yes. And you asked me in preparation for the lunch, what was the biggest risk? Yeah. And it is a Taiwan war, a war that is likely to involve the U.S. And yeah. so we developed two years ago a specialized team that is looking day in, day out solely at that issue. And we were the first. Uh, yeah. Of course, now there's lots of Taiwan experts everywhere, but um, we were one ahead of the game, seeing that this will become progressively a very important risk. And then the first to set up a dedicated team that has looked at that issue for now two years. So is able to assess, um, of course, the team is made up of people who have <laughs> done Taiwan for a lot longer than that and understand uh, the issues involved. I mean, that is incredibly ahead of the curve. Um, I do want to. I want to get into the Taiwan um, viewpoint, um, especially because you've got a great. I mean, this is not necessarily a Taiwan thing, but um, one of the pie charts that jumped out was the X. No, I'm fine. I'm fine. Um, you've got a great pie chart showing like a breakdown of Chinese exports to America, and I was very surprised that there was a huge chunk of nuclear components in there um, and I was like is that the next like realization like because with, with Taiwan I felt like until 2021 nobody knew they were 90% like of you know semiconductors were made in Taiwan these days um, it was a bit of a blind spot but I did not appreciate I love the name blind spot by the way oh thank you <laughs> But um, I didn't appreciate that China was exporting vital components to like America's nuclear industry as well. I mean, to that level, because it was like a like a significant chunk. It was definitely a birthday cake chunk. <laughs> and what's also uh, sort of staggering is that actually they developed um, their expertise on the back of a lot of collaboration with the U.S. Yes, and then 
they succeeded to, to front run them. Yes. And this has been the strategy that China has pursued throughout its opening up period. Yeah. I recently did another report looking at Germany. Uh-huh. You know, China had this Made in China 2025 strategy that um, I think if they hadn't, you know, uh, if they hadn't come up with this catchy name, Made in China 2025, whereas all the other names are, you know, weird that we can't even remember. <laughs> Uh, they, they, it's, it wouldn't have been noticed, and it did get noticed. So now they're not talking about it, but still cracking on with it. So they, uh, we found this. They, they run this competition um, from that time, where they are uh, asking for domestic companies to submit, um, uh, you know, to, to pitch be, uh, joining the competition. You have to be the top three in the world um, for that specific product. And it's very, very kind of profiled, if you see what I mean. Because in China, you never know how far they've progressed technologically because it oscillates between total secrecy and hyperbole. So um, that was a good way of cross-checking through their own data where they are, you know. So And and, and what is the conclusion? Well, the conclusion is that they've absolutely hollowed out Germany. Really? Yes, as the sort of main machinery builder in electric. Um, so you know, you mentioned nuclear um, with the U.S. That's yeah. a, that that's an area where they have now progressed tremendously. The same has happened with 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 uh, Germany, and the German companies themselves are now talking that they will not be the leaders in these fields going forward. That's amazing. That is a blind spot as well because. And I think the current crisis with energy um, is an example of like the investor space being overly complacent about Germany's dominant role. Because Absolutely. if there was anything to show how precarious that like position of Germany is in Europe, it's it's um, over exposure to gas, Russian gas, and without that, you know, for, for years the um, sovereign risk in Europe has not been Germany's been the benchmark. And I do wonder if this is going to turn the kind of tables around on on the pricing of European sovereign debt. Because if ben- if Germany isn't the benchmark, that changes all the relative pricing, um, in my opinion. I don't know what the concept, I haven't thought about it in lo- long enough, but I think there is, you know, the Bund is the, uh, you know, it's, it's the benchmark. I think you have a point there. I think it's in markets more generally. It's misunderstood how hollowed out Germany is, how dependent it is on China. And at the same time, of course, you know, in this great decoupling, the aim of the game is to sort of decide now which country is going to end up in which sphere of influence. Before the Ukraine war, I wasn't certain whether Germany will fall in the sort of American sphere of influence. I wasn't. I mean, both the Russians and the Chinese have had very active operations in Europe, very concerted, and Germany and China had a special relationship during uh, the time of Merkel. I mean, some people kind of have said Germany is like a fifth column for China and Russia and Europe, you know, with Schroeder on 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 the board of Gazprom and, you know. I mean, interestingly as well, and... um, I'm not, I'm not an expert on Germany, 
but, but the way Germany runs its economy is very similar to actually the way uh, China runs its economy. And certainly China is trying to emulate Germany and the yeah. way they build the middle stand. And I didn't realize that a lot of housing in Germany is social housing, for example. Yes, yes. So the state plays a big role. Um, but no, I wasn't certain. And, and Germany mattered because in this new world, which will be bifurcated, and I often have discussions with people who say, oh, no, it's going to be balkanized or it's going to have, you know, I, I was in India most recently. And of course, the Indians think they could be, a, <laughs> maybe not now, but in a hundred years time, another oh, but they are fall. An, they are an underappreciated power, I think, and they're positioning themselves quite cleverly at the moment. Yes, so agreed on that, but the, po the point I'm making for now is that uh, whoever's going to win the technology race will be the future global hegemon. And the thing is that China and America are so far ahead than anyone else that it's very difficult for Europe or India, or let alone Russia, to catch up. Um, I give India the, the biggest benefit of the doubt. I, 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 Europe, I don't see succeeding despite having Nokia and Ericsson and a couple of the other machine producers that uh, are important for um, advanced semiconductors. But so I could see India, but for the next 50 years, it's not going to be to be that. And with technology permeating every single aspect with 5G, 6G, yeah. the Internet of Things, everything becomes a weapon if you think about it yes. we are exposed so there is no way i mean the whole battle around huawei um kind of um, epitomized all that so to my view we are splitting into an american sphere of influence or a western you can call it more broadly sphere of influence and a china-led sphere of influence and for if if it was not for the Ukraine war, I would have put Germany into China's camp. I think the Ukraine war has, if we can have anything good to say about it, uh, woken up Europe, not just in Germany, not just to the Russian threat, but to the, to the threat that authoritarian regimes across the world uh, present to the free, liberal, democratic world. So what? That's a good um, pivot point to your report because I was interested to, uh, you presented very clearly that the world views of the West and, the chi and China are so different. So, so you've got the sort of Blinken perspective on, on, uh, on what the West means, what the kind of rules-based system coming out of World War II, um, you know, that was what we were aspiring for. And we thought we could bring everybody in and, and the Blinken perspective is very much that this serves everybody, right? But the Chinese perspective from from what I understand, and I'm obviously not the expert, is that that's not going to work for countries that prefer no intervention, in, interference in their own domestic politics, in the way they, how they choose to govern. They see things as more multi, multipolar um, and is it really what is the driving force of that being so China up until the industrial revolution was the biggest and most important uh, economy in the world for as they like to say 5,000 years and maybe the numbers have gone up as well because they found some 
archaeological finds recently, so they're making, I think, a bigger claim. But anyway, without getting into that, and, and they were the focal point. And China never really actually developed uh, along the lines of the Western ideas of states diplomacy on equal level. Uh, the way they see the world is that China is at, at the center of it, and in fact there is a lot to be said about Chinese exceptionalism, the fact that they think that they are better than um, you know anyone else, that they are special, and then the old tributary system, the rest of the world just feeding them and not objecting with what they want to uh, achieve and how they want to run their country. Now, the problem is, I think, that, you know, all empires, uh, certainly um, the, the latest one, uh, well, I would call American empire, um, um, yeah, I'm still, I'm still drinking mine, oh, later. Um, <laughs> What I mean is that uh, they don't want to go around the world. I mean, they've looked at the American model of having 800 military bases and how costly it is. So they don't want to provide the global national uh, sort of security goods and pay for that. So in that sense, when they talk about anyone can do whatever they, they want and we want to interfere with their way they run things, they actually genuinely mean it. Uh, but what they do not want is anyone else being able to tell them, let alone force them, to do things the way they don't want to do them. So, uh, and, and there lies the problem for them eventually too, because there's no way they could, you know, uh, secure a position as a, even as a counter to US uh, uh, supremacy without having to ultimately also provide security goods. Uh, they think that they could achieve that with technology, but um, I doubt that that would be sufficient to, to make sure, let's say, that their investments in, in, in Africa are, are actually uh, theirs, if you see what I mean. So ultimately, they'll have to be prepared to put boots on the ground and not just rely on, on kind of technological control. So, um, so yes, they, 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 but, but they don't, they talk about globalization, but only if it suits them. And they talk about the multipolar, you know, world or le letting everyone else uh, do what they want, as long as that doesn't uh, confront, clash, or demand any different behavior from China. And the globalized world that we had since the Second World War was very much based on the Western uh, ideas of uh, freedom and, uh, if not of you know of, of um, I mean of expression of ideas, and that's not what China is about. So it is a clash of two ideologies at the bottom of it. So what do you think is the most misunderstood thing by Western investors in vis-a-vis -vis that? varying perspective? Um, I mean, I think it's taken them a long time to, to understand. And that's not just investors, it's across the board. I mean, yeah. I've become the most unpopular sort of uh, uh, mum at school <laughs> or on the football touchline where mostly it's the dads 
um, because you know they asked me what I do and I started talking to them about Taiwan war and very quickly everyone <laughs> leaves. So but I live through the collapse of a system. Yes. I know how yes. quickly things that, that work one week, so the yes. next week yes. are, are just not there. Yes. And so I understand that from personal experience, I think in the Western world that hasn't been the case for a very long time. So a lot, you know, are you concerned about where we are now with the energy? I mean, do you think we are at a point where we could see similar escalation, um, neg you know, negative feedback loops creating a sort of broader collapse? Or are you more are you more positive minded about the strength, ongoing strength, of say the dollar? And, I am a glass half full person if I have to actually reveal my, my bias, uh, which, you know, if you listen to me, you might think I'm a glass half empty. It's, it's on the contrary. I'm a glass half full. I always look for the positive. I always see the positive. Um, but, but in my personality, in my research, I'm trying to be objective. I'm trying to see what, what is likely to happen. And I do worry that on the one hand, we have the clash of these two ideologies and it's not um, as obviously clear as, let's say, 30 years ago, which side will, will win. And to your question, I worry that in the, in the free liberal world, we have had it good for a long time and are maybe not mentally prepared to understand the major transformations that are happening and, and sort of accept and, and start thinking how to make sure that we succeed. But also that the way things have panned out, and, and again, that's not necessarily my area of expertise, is and, and why I think what I do is so important and why I enjoy it so much is because I am prepared to make a judgment in an extremely uncertain sphere. I mean, everyone jokes with, you know, economists and how they're never right and all of these things. Um, so it's, it's not easy to, to put your head above the parapet as an economist. Um, but I feel that in a lot of positions of power, policy making, that those in those positions are not prepared to make the necessary judgments that come out of genuine conviction. And as such, we end up with leaders that are not effective and that are not the best uh, that we have. I mean, take central banking as an example, uh, in the sense that um, post the global financial crisis, where there should have been a huge uh, kind of inward look into why they missed asset price inflation, why they missed the influence of China on the rest of the world and global news economy, the whole lot. And we ended up with, uh, if you remember, forward guidance, which was even more trying to find the rule to absolve yourself from the responsibility of making a decision. And, and one of the people I enjoyed meeting in 2008 was actually Paul Volcker. Oh, really? Yes, uh, we, had, we ran this uh, archive seminar, which, by the way, is extraordinary. He's very tall and talks with his deep voice. Well, when, well, I then later on went to see him in New York and he, he was, um, oh, you are very tall as well. I said, well, yes, yeah, I am tall. I mean, you know, I don't know why that's relevant, but I am. I don't know. He's really a giant, but in many ways. Anyway, he was, you know, I, I was, 
this was someone who at the time could make a conviction call and stood for what he thought his assessment uh, meant and it was against. So, so I feel that we are moving towards a constant um, hiding behind rules, hiding behind the science, if we take COVID and the UK government, yes. uh, and um, not prepared, people prepared to say, look, the world is uncertain in most disciplines are not physics, certainly in the social sciences, all decisions is a cost-benefit analysis, and it's you're working in an uncertain world, often in a radical uncertainty. One of the, one of the central bankers I have utmost respect for is Mervyn King, um, extraordinary. Uh, and so in this world, you have to be prepared to make a judgment call. And I feel that... And actually, I think the way it's structured, the way... Well, I think this comes out of the Washington Consensus rule-based order is that you are striving for consensus so much that you you fear making consent uh, a conv conviction cause in case it rocks the boat you don't you don't want to do that and then you end up kind of trying to in trying to be make everybody happy you never position um the economy or anything in a in a in a direction where well i guess climate change and esg is now changing that but even so um, it's still oriented around the, the whole concept of consensus um, rather than vision, so to speak. Um, but then again, I would you know, argue that um, I think the strength of, um, of the Western way of, of doing things is that we do, you know, even if we take a wrong turn, there are forces to, to swing us in the opposite direction to counterbalance. The worry that I have is that um, in the autocratic world, of course, if you are so lucky that you end up with a benign autocrat and they are taking, you know, wise decisions, maybe you go in the right direction, but it becomes an echo chamber. I mean, it's crystal clear that um, the war in Ukraine was, was a total disaster, partly because, from a Russian point of view, mm. partly because no one was uh, uh, able uh, to, to tell Putin what he didn't want to hear. And so the information, even if he is the, you know, I, I don't know, half the people I met who, who have met him in person say he is brilliant and half say he's not brilliant, so I don't know. But, you know, assuming he's this great mind, uh, he was fed the wrong information and then he made the wrong choice. I think a similar worry now is uh, exists in China. They used to, you know, pose the disaster of the Mao years. They had a better system for kind of trying not to end up in the disaster of the Mao years again. And um, Xi Jinping has change things dramatically so he is also progressively and now i think at the upcoming party congress he is going to be crowned as leader for life so he will be operating in an even bigger uh, echo chamber um, than, than even up to now speaking of the sort of personality cults oh, and all these sort of neg negative externalities associated with being an autocrat what is the situation because um, i don't think i don't think the broad sort of, well, you know, mainstream really 
is au fait with what's going on in China. So does she have total kind of support or is, are there factional, um, is there factional opposition? How, how much awareness can there be of that opposition if it exists? You know, what, what is your take on the actual makeup of the um, political um, top order in China? A few months ago, it looked in the run-up to the Congress, which is now set for October the 16th, um, that there was opposition. But two or three weeks ago, suddenly the communique, when, he, when they announced the date of the start of the Congress, made it crystal clear that uh, he managed to overcome all that. I'll tell you uh, why. And sadly, even though I'm sure this wasn't Nancy Pelosi's uh, intention uh, when she set off to visit Taiwan against advice from everyone, uh, certainly the White House, the Pentagon and so on, um, it helped by, by allowing him to um, rely on kind of stoking the nationalist forces. Now she's power base is the army. Oh, so he used her as a tool to get to to to, to really finally do the final kind of uh, silencing of his critics uh, on focusing on the national security threat of the U.S. Ah, you see, I told you so, and then Nancy is the uh, I told you so. Um, yes, in a way. So what what um, what has happened in a system like China is that I mean first a popular revolt is almost uh, impossible uh, given the high levels of surveillance which got enhanced post COVID uh, not just the electronic and technological tracking but even that grid system and having people within your block that are tasked with knowing every single move of you make. I still remember when... Snitches. Yes, where I, you know, we used to have the grandmothers, you know, we, I lived in a big block like this as well as a child, and you go out and, the, you know, the grandmothers are there watching, you know, who's going, who's moving, who's doing what. So so the old style watching and, and, and monitoring. It is, it is amazing to me that, like, what you're talking about, I totally get, it is... Is the idea of total? You don't have any privacy because the community is doing the policing and the spying on behalf of the government. And you can't. It, 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 actually, but in, in the in the UK, obviously, with the opposite, we have neighbourhood watch, and that no one's ever thought of that as a sort of like snitchy surveillance thing. You see it as like not enough people are involved. Like it's, it's all so mediocre, and that's what's the difference. I think that really demarks the difference between the two systems. So. You know, also they, they have, originally it was, the worry was that the internet will bring visibility in a way that might undermine the regime, but they spend huge amounts of money on it, but they have managed to keep sort of a closed system and they monitor and take down things fairly instantaneously. So any sort of localized dissent is, is immediately uh, squashed as well as of course, news do doesn't break out. So then you look at the option of a coup d'etat, you know, an internal political yeah. struggle. That, But that has also become extremely difficult because, um, you know, for example, members of the top political bodies are not allowed to meet one-on-one. -on -one. 
they have to always be meet really? with someone in attendance. Interesting. And of course, then you have the people who assign your security details, your secretary, your driver, and those guys are all spying on you. So that's the people without even then taking the technology into account. So with she having such a, a hard grasp over the army and the security services, it is not impossible uh, for any opposition to, to, to produce any meaningful outcome that can challenge him. The only scenario I can envisage, and we're definitely not there yet, is that his rule is such that he produces, you know, disasters to the extent that people can feed themselves, and that at one of the enclaves when everyone is together, um, you know, some brave soul says, I don't agree with you, and people are so, fra you know, exhausted, not caring whether they live or die, and they get up and say, we don't be agree with you. That's the only scenario. But that is not where they are now that's in terms sort of, of more of a Ceausescu moment. Yeah. You know. Then then that's not where they are right now. And yeah, what is trans in that position economically? Yes. Even though the economy is uh, heading. Oh yeah. Tell, tell me more. So tell <laughs> with me about big strides in that direction. So what is the biggest? So obviously we had this like real estate crisis that was followed by uh, those. Which may I may I just interject yeah, that uh, the German uh, investors have managed to not just be exposed to the global financial crisis, no, the U.S. Uh, oh, assets, but one. also Chinese real estate. So that's a German intensive exposure. I see. I, this is one of my blind spots because. There's so much going on in 2021. I, I, I knew it was no, but happening. Where do we look easy? Because that's why it's become so hard. You know, just everything is up in the air. Everything is changing. Yeah. It's uh, to, to get things right and to be able to see it all. Um, it's, it's really hard. It's <laughs> extremely hard. It's really hard. You have to have tentacles everywhere. And you feel a little like, you know, a, you know, you feel them being, you know, triggered here and there. But like, Sometimes you miss these massive stories and how they relate, but that I did not know that German uh, German investors were so exposed specifically to the Chinese real estate. So this is through the Evergrande. So maybe just but tell those who don't know what, like, what 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 happened with with that. So things started to kind of kick off early last year. Well, what is important to understand here is that post the global financial crisis, China adopted this stance, policy stance, that's going to preempt problems. Yeah. So this is them preempting the real estate problem. Right. And then they introduced the so-called three red lines, which essentially was regulation uh, which uh, impacted the ability of real estate uh, companies to, to um, acquire debt. And that started an unraveling in the sector, which is viewed or frowned upon by Xi for two reasons. One, because real estate investment as a share of GDP is an abnormal proportion, but much more importantly, because Xi Jinping wants to achieve an equal society. And so his idea of common prosperity and everyone having the same uh, meant that actually house prices rising were the biggest uh, enemy because it makes rich people richer, poor people poorer. So he wants to bring house prices down. So, so the triggering of the collapse was actually quite strategic. It was, it was enforced from above. Yes. It was not the market forces. But of course, then market forces kick in because <laughs> China is not just a top-down command economy. That's why it gets 
you know, so interesting. And we were arguing that that would happen when, when they started doing this. And, and, and of course, arguing that the foreign investor will bear all the brunt. They will try and protect certain stakeholders internally, not least the households who have uh, uh, bought properties, uh, but um, that no one will give a damn about the foreign investor. And so those were the, the, the people that, that bore the brunt of, of the adjustment so far. But what I found very interesting is the ingenuity of the Chinese person. <laughs> I mean, I have all the respect for the Chinese uh, nation and, you know, they were given initial fortuitous circumstances, but not, you know, other nations may not have achieved what they achieved. So anyway, going back to this, in the old days, because the majority of investment in real estate was via your savings, not with borrowing, um, if projects were not delivered on time or by the time, you know, if, if there were problems, all you could do was protest, maybe destroy the offices of the real estate developer, but that's it. At the end of it, if the government didn't step in, you just sort of lost your capital. But because in the last few years, mortgage borrowing growth has exploded, I mean, from being way behind US levels, it's now pretty much close to US levels. So in the space of a few years, a huge chunk of the investment in real estate, in housing in particular, has been via borrowing. Now, the Chinese found a very ingenious way of protesting, which was to stop paying their mortgage uh, payments for oh, those really? stalled uh, projects. They're not paying it until, you know, they get, because they've invested in the way they see it, all their money and so on, and, of and, course. And there's no repercussions for that? Well, there could be repercussions for that, of course. You know, there's the social credit system. So if yeah. you are someone I, like... I have a friend who is from, has been in China for a long time, and he was telling me that as they're rolling out this social credit system, you have a, a mechanism where if someone who is in debt is near you and has like, and not just in debt, but like someone who is obviously defaulted or whatever, it tells you how near you are to such a person. And it also asks you to snitch on them if you see them like buying, you know, Louis Vuitton scarves because they're in debt and, and, and they're in, behind on repayments. I mean, so that so that's why it's fascinating to me that you can, what you're saying. And what I'm trying to say is that let's say, you know, sort of there is a, a group of people who are, you know, as some people said, uh, you know, without giving the, the sort of examples of, of the context, you know, I, 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 I'm dying today. I don't care about the future, if you see what I mean. So people are desperate. They're not, you know, let's they say invested. And so at one point they say, that's it. But in the past, they could only protest by, as I said, you know, just uh, destroying some property, losing their capital, and that's it. Now, if the numbers are large enough, they can protest in a way that could cause a systemic crisis. That's what I mean. Oh, I see. Because I see. then you stop paying and, and, you know, you might be an individual that has lost all will to live and decided I don't care even if they punish me in the future because my, I, I am already dead today. Um, and then if it's enough people, there is a much bigger impact when it's via leverage as it would be then it's when it's via capital, yes. if it makes, if, if you yeah, understand yeah, what yeah. I mean. Because then, the because then you expose the whole financial system. Now, I mean, they seem, they seem to have, again, gotten uh, a control, gotten on top of that. You know, we're not hearing a lot more about that no, recently. No. 
But what I worry, and, and as I said, I have been doing this, looking at China for more than two decades, and even though in the past I might have been described as a China bull, I thought I was a China realist. And I think the people who have followed me through the years, and I have very good relationships with the Chinese themselves, because they do understand that I see things from their way, and I'm able to act as an inter... I think, I think you're a neutral operator, and that is why that's the value. Um, and, do. and, you know, I, I don't have an interest in a, a third world war. I want the two sides to understand each other yes, and to, to avoid, you know, if, I'm very happy for people to live in, in any way they want as long as, you know, we can agree that we're not going to interfere in child systems. Yeah, whether that's really ultimately achievable, the setup of our Taiwan Watch team can tell you what I, what I as a forecaster, do. But as a, as a mother, I want us not to get there. So anyway, that's a digression. That's no, no, the. No, no, no. I think it's a worthy digression, and I agree. I, I, I would like to avoid World War Three as well. I don't think anyone wins in that. And so I'm trying to to make two sides understand each other, and and have been in this unique position to be able to do that because I just so happen to to grow up in communism, to understand that side of things, and then to be trained by some of the best Western market economists. And I think what people forget now about communism is that, because, you know, the vic history, history is written by the victors, as they say, but obviously communism was bad. I have my own experiences. But there is a significant chunk of Polish society, I'm sure it's the same of Bulgarian society, who felt worse off after communism fell and still longed for the return of communism and who didn't understand how to navigate in the world of liberal kind of rad like the Jeffrey Sachs liberal experiment right um, China has taken this middle way of trying not to you know just open up immediately because it understood that you can't take people well Russia's even more exceptional because I think in Russia, you've seen like effectively a feudal society go straight from feudalism to, well, the same applies to, to China, really. The same applies to China, to yeah. be honest. Mm. But I there is now this transition, this slow transitioning, whereas in, in Russia, okay. communism just collapsed and then it was supposed to be capitalism. And that is, I mean, I don't, I'm no, I'm no. Would yes. you like anything? Do you have time for a dessert or a coffee? Um, I wouldn't mind an ice. Cream. I would love a tiramisu. Tiramisu for you. What types of ice cream do you have? Uh, Vanilla only? Oh, no, there. there. Ice cream. Ice cream and uh, sorbet. Oh. Tiramisu for you? I will have, have the salted caramel. Okay. Uh, yeah, one scoop. Perfect. Salted caramel. And yes. tiramisu. Perfect. Yes. Yeah, but the problem, it, well, well, uh, so, so hence the oligarch took advantage of, 
the thing is that uh, I mean the system wasn't able to provide that blanket anymore. That's, That's the tragic. point. So Collapse. it wasn't that the blanket was there and was well, pulled. The blanket disappeared because the system was able to provide. I, it. I think that but what happened is misunderstood. I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm projecting my own assumptions into it. But something. Thank you. Some people in, interpret it as apologizing for communism, and some people take it as a more pragmatic stance that. Whatever, whatever you know, it was clear it had collapsed, but maybe there must have been some sort of middle way order. Um, we can debate that to the end I of the think, earth. Uh, I think probably what I would say was certainly the case um, was that the Western world did not understand the ex-communist world and how much more involved they had to be if they wanted to make sure that the money they were throwing and the efforts they were making were successful because there was a huge re-education sort of needed and i'll give you another example uh, but also the the, the the conclusion i took as well was that uh, in a, when a system collapses completely the only organized uh, part of society that seems to stand up is is either the criminal or the security services which yes. in the case or they combine together <laughs> which in in, in i mean certainly in the bulgarian uh, context they were very close line between that and organized crime so so all of a sudden they were in a position to take uh, decisions they were the most organized that the system standing and they that's such an important point i think that is so underappreciated i mean it is kind of appreciated like by people in the know but that is so key to um it is the security services I think because I don't know if it's the fault of James Bond, but but more. <laughs> no, no, this is true. But no, in the West, because you know, Speaks in your system, nice. yeah. I mean, we were for your interest. We were. Th I mean, Ooh. for us, these were the enemy. Ooh, these were yeah. the people that have control over your life, and and were just. Whereas here, they look, and I think here, uh, genuinely so. You know, I, I think this is correct here, but but it sort of created maybe that misunderstanding that. For the general population, I'm sure not for the security services here, uh, that uh, that um, you know that they, they just didn't realize. I guess it's easy when you are in uh, the victor and in the euphoria of the fall of the Berlin Wall and the end of history, yeah. that you just um, sort of stop paying attention. Because what I noticed from my own perspective was that. Uh, Sort of us in the East learned a lot about the West after the dissolution of the wall. But people in the West were no longer interested in the East and they sort of didn't actually understand how life was like. But anyway, so I mean, the point, uh, well, how did we go to that? We went from autocrats to control of society and the collapse. You were saying that. You only see them, you see she look, losing control in a collapse scenario. Well, and then we yes. transition. Yes, I mean, unless a person falls seriously ask, ill, which then, yeah, you know, whatever. But I want to ask you also about another underappreciated point um, and how it feeds it, how, um, well, I, I want to know what investors should make of it. Um, the cultural aspect, how important is the cultural kind of identity of China and their different perspective on so many different cultural um, 
factors that we in the West take for granted and assume almost as if they are a, um, a kind of global norm not to be challenged. Do you think there is a cultural cultural kind of war side of it, ideological, not just ideological, but cultural? Culture in the sense that there's so much misunderstanding from the uh, get-go because of very, very different ways of looking at the world and thinking about the world. I mean, the, the, the easiest one to uh, talk about and to start with is the idea of um, contradictions the way the Chinese, they don't see it as black and white. They see it as this yin and yang, this interaction between two very contradicting concepts. So they're very comfortable in ambiguity. Whereas in the Western yeah. world, we are not, and we look very much much more in black and white and contracts. And so, so that is so fundamental that from the get-go, it creates a huge number of, of confusion. Uh, and of course, there is um, so many different cultural ways of, looking at things but to my mind the, the biggest you know using uh, the blind spot uh, idea is the fact that to an extent the world has sort of understood that we are decoupling from a manufacturing technology point of view but I think investors are failing to realize that that would also mean invariably that we will decouple from the point of view of global financial markets and the free movement of capital. That brings us to the RMB. And to the report that, um, that we just did, which, by the way, was, was actually a think tank kind of report that is for public... Um, you know, it's available to the public. It is not uh, just for our clients. It was a very, very detailed and long-term look into how China plans to decouple from the dollar-based global financial system, what are its strategies, and what should the U.S. do about it. Um, so why, number one, why does it want to decouple? What is, why is the dollar not working for them anymore? Mm. Well, sorry, that's the ice cream and my sensitive teeth. That's fine. My tiramisu is very nice. I have gone. Um, I've been longing. I mean, this is the problem with doing meat lunches, but um, <laughs> but I have been longing for tiramisu for a long time. So I'm, I'm treat. I usually try not to have it dessert, but I, this uh, uh, ice cream is gorgeous as well. But I have to sort of eat it without it letting uh, without letting it touch my teeth. Mm. So, I mean, look uh, for starters. And here, I'm definitely not of the view that the U.S. shouldn't have weaponized the dollar, if you see what I mean, and that led China to, or Russia, or, or so on. No, that's not the cause. The fundamental cause is China wants to become self-sufficient. It wants itself not to be dependent on the U.S. in any shape or form, whether it's the dollar or technology or anything else. Uh, and so, in that sense, um, the weaponization of the dollar is more, to my mind, the response of those autocratic systems uh, or to those autocratic systems kind of pursuing their own way and you don't fit in our system anymore if that's what you want to do, rather than the cause of alienating those regimes, if you see what I mean. So I think that's an important point to make. 
so obviously, I mean, even now with the sanctions on Russia, uh, China has been at pains to avoid falling foul of the U.S. sanctions because on Russia, um, because it is still very much dependent on the U.S. dollars. More than 80, uh, I mean, 75 percent of its trade is denominated in dollars. Um, and, you know, quite a lot of it um, is, I think it was 25 percent is paid in yuan. Um, I can't remember the exact data, but but it, it's very this this differentiation between denomination and what it is actually paid in is also very important. But without getting into the details of that, they are exposed. So they are not commodity. They are a net commodity importer. So that's also is, does that add to their concerns? Uh, it does add because fundamentally, what they want very simplistically is to be able to buy what they need with their own currency and not to be dependent on the US somehow switching um, them off. Um, and it's, you know, that's at the, that's from a geopolitical level. There's also a lot of uh, China wanting to create its own sphere of influence where the yuan is the main currency. And the fact that um, there has been, whether warranted or not, a genuine loss of confidence in how America runs its economy and what that means for the rest of the world. I mean, post tell, the, tell me a bit more about that. that. That was in your report, and I found that very interesting. Well, I mean, post the global financial crisis, um, because so much of trade, the dollar is used for so much of trade in Asia, that, you know, trade between, um, let's say, Korea and Taiwan couldn't happen because there was a scarcity of dollars for something that um, Korea and Taiwan didn't have anything to do with, if you see what I mean. And also, I think, in response to the global financial crisis, the regulatory uh, changes in terms of bank capital, cross-border transactions that and requirements that, that um, were imposed on the system made... Uh, using the dollar for cross-border trade, including trade finance, much more expensive for emerging economies. So the cost went up post that shock of not having enough dollars to, to intermediate trade in Asia, and those countries thought they had nothing to do with what was going in the US. Now, my argument ahead of the financial crisis was that actually China's mode of development and its uh, integration into global economy but without the US keeping it or holding it to account to comply with what it promised under the WTO and allowing it too long of a leash and too long time to move forward with actually having a properly fully-fledged market economy led to the global financial crisis and the greedy bankers came as a secondary force, not as the fundamental driver. So, but, but the, all of that is not understood as China, it's not the, the, the standard way of thinking, so, and in Asia as well. So they look at this and, and see this dollar shortage as, as a fault of the American system, of the capitalist system. And so, um, and China is, is... So they see that as a reason why to guard against, like, they need to make their own system resilient to the excesses of the, uh, of the Western, and, and, and the kind of bad management of the, the Western. bad management, let's say, of the American um, economic system, that's how they see it. They want um, to create their own sphere of 
you know, geopolitical influence with the UN at the center, and they want to be not dependent um, in any shape or form on the US dollar. How big a deal is the, um, I mean, this is off, off track a little bit, but I think it's relevant and I, we're running out of time and I want to get these, these points in. How, how big a deal is the Uyghur thing? Like, because obviously we've had sanctions. Where today is Friday the 16th, Monday is the Queen's funeral. There's a lot of discussion about whether she will attend the funeral. But then there's the fact that uh, we've still got politicians who have been sanctioned and by China. Um, but then the funeral is a massive state, like exercise in, in geopolitical diplomacy as well. Um, what do you think? Because I, I was listening to the radio this morning, just on like Radio 4, I can't remember where. Um, there was a very, I think, upfront debate about the fact that why would we let Xi come but not Putin? Because from the popular perspective, the genocide, there is, as far as they're concerned, a genocide going on with the Uyghurs. Why is that not comparable to what's going on in Ukraine? I mean, you could ask the same question about the Erdogan. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, but this so, is the kind of, the, this is what people are asking, there's a contradiction. So who gets the invite, who doesn't, why not? Does it even matter? I mean, it does matter, but what I do think is that... The, it feels like Sleeping Beauty, you know, when they didn't invite the bad fairy? And then the bad fairy comes and like does a spell that makes the whole kingdom go to sleep? Uh, it's it's the, very important to invite the right people. <laughs> I think I think um, what has what has happened is that neither the UK nor actually the US has a proper as yet well thought out uh, China strategy. And really? so, well, uh, yeah, I don't think so. And it's sort of this um, swinging between extremes, trying to find their way of what would be the most effective, because this realization has come as a shock in a way and then maybe a little bit too late it should have oh la la <laughs> we're in an italian restaurant it's very so from that perspective i think this is what, what we are observing you know uh, we are in the process of um, us finding what will be the most effective way of dealing with an entity that's not going away anytime soon. This is the thing, so, you know, the ideas of regime change, which existed 30 years ago, that all of these economies will change and convert to, or countries will convert to our way of thinking, to the way uh, things are done in the West, that um, only recently had to be reassessed, that that belief existed for a long time. And I mean, and it's amazing how it turned, frankly, because you know, China was our trade partner, our friend, you know, there was uh, absolute cross-pollination across so many industries. And then suddenly in the space of two years, was it down to Trump or do you think it would have happened anyway? It could have happened anyway. It, in the sense that the vote for Trump was the public's, or for that matter, Brexit, to be honest, was the public's... Um, expression of the their displeasure let's say at the more general case uh, so generalizing because there were a lot of reasons in both cases of why we ended up here at saying that this world as we've got to now doesn't work for us 
uh, and a lot of the part of why this world didn't work for these people had to do with this um, dysfunctional inter integration of two extremely different types of regimes. Yes. And um, so we would have gotten here in, in one way or another. I mean, you know, I've been right about many things, but I was wrong in the wake of the financial crisis because I thought that the trade wars and that confrontation will happen already then. Because it was entirely at that time my assessment in hindsight, I can say. <laughs> I realized I judged it on the economics. And I failed to realize that we first needed to see the political change to enable such a fundamental change in the society, yeah, economy, yeah. and so on. So just the pure economics were not... Uh, were you needed the um, ideological change as well. Um, so we are now in a position of transition in that sense. And I just think that um, uh, the West uh, is not yet does not yet have a coherent long-term strategy of how it is uh, going to deal with this threat and uh, it needs to think about it very, very carefully. And investors are failing to look at, um, I mean, they haven't had to look at geopolitics for so long. Uh, and even before, because even before the fall of the Berlin Wall, they didn't have to either from the perspective that you had, um, you know, equity risk premium kind of counting, oh, the potential of Russia coming and taking everything, or the Soviet Union, but it the world wasn't integrated. Whereas now it is so deeply integrated that uh, it is very hard. But we have thought of a lot of um, very interesting uh, sort of great decoupling investment strategies, which are based on this idea of the split and which companies will
you know, okay, if we're not going to be in, in China, maybe we should have a few bases in, I don't know, another low-cost um, Asian country. But not thinking about it from the perspective of, wait a second, geopolitically, is this country safe? Is it likely to end in China's sphere of influence or in our sphere of influence? Would, would you like anything else? Coffee? No, no. Um, I am I just espresso, please. Just oh, actually, like would you like one? Uh, not an espresso, but if you have a green tea. So, from all the vices I could acquire in Hong Kong, uh, I'm very happy that the only one I, well, not vice, but addiction, uh, the only one I came back with is that towards green tea. Well, it's a good one, better than coffee, but I need my coffee today. Um, how does COVID change everything? How does... Um, it has accelerated everything. Yeah. All of these underlying developments have did been you, accelerated. Did you see yesterday there was the... Um, the outcome, the results, the conclusion of the two-year investigation into COVID origins that was being led by the Lancet and Jeffrey Sachs, no, no, no other. Um, and it was a fascinating conclusion because, it, you know, people are now calling Jeffrey Sachs a Chinese shill um, because he sided with the idea that there might have been like some. I believe there is a very well-traveled conspiracy theory in China that it was the Americans who started COVID. Have you heard that? I have, of course. Yeah. Uh, so Jer Je Jeffrey Sachs, I think, um, in his findings, which are very much inconclusive, but they um, brought into the fray the idea that America might have had some role to play in it. So this has been uh, somewhat scandalous, I think, um, although downplayed and over, overshadowed by the Queen's funeral. So I do sometimes wonder what is being buried right now in terms of news. But do you think that, um, you know, how, because obviously now we, China is still in lockdown. It's still, and I, when I talk to Chinese uh, residents, they're suspicious of whether these lockdowns are happening for COVID reasons. They think it's to do with factional disputes. I mean, I've heard all sorts of theories like, oh, it's only Shanghai, Beijing was, you know, I think Beijing has a lockdown now. What's, what's the latest on the lockdowns? I mean, the latest is um, Chengdu. So another very, very big uh, city in China got uh, way, uh, got locked down. I mean, you, you sort of went through a lot of... Uh, yes, there's a lot. Yeah, you let, you the went. question is, how has COVID changed everything? Um, it and has what's, accelerated what's this great decoupling, uh, but simultaneously, you know, on the side of... Uh, <laughs> So the problem is that this all-of-nation kind of way of uh, working in terms of how China works, um, the West has tried to counter it by, by replicating, in a way, their methods, which is, I think is very much, to my mind, the wrong approach. Uh, simultaneously, under Xi, China has veered away from, you know, 180 degrees from its previous trajectory and changing towards much more Maoist, top-down control. Da, 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 da. So what COVID did, I think, was accelerate the decoupling, uh, make China's economic situation and the sort of swing towards command and control even uh, faster. And on the Western side, it um, maybe made the swing towards coming up with solutions to counter what's going on uh, much more in line with uh, 
authoritarian regimes or top-down command economy regimes, which I think is the wrong way for us to respond as a, as a counter to that. I think in the free, liberal, Western democratic world, we should double down on our values in order to counter this, but think very carefully, you know, what are the best strategies rather than uh, swing in the direction of, uh, of the state playing an ever larger role in people's lives. And so COVID accelerated both of those, you know, it made China's system more vulnerable, um, but I think it's also made uh, our system more vulnerable because we are straying more from our values. And, and the bifurcation is, is just accelerated to the nth degree. Now, what was going on with COVID in China, which was kind of a separate line to, to what you were thinking, is that, I mean, you know, I, I have not read the Jeffrey Sachs report. I, I, you know, I can't comment on its findings. Um, but what I can say is that with this type of thing, it's highly unlikely that either, uh, you know, China or America would have intentionally led this rip. That is highly unlikely. Where it was created, how it escaped, whether it was negligence, whatever, I mean, you know, that's a different side of things. But, but given the sort of panic response of the Chinese uh, at the time and the overreaction, uh, and given, you know, how the Americans have dealt with the crisis, no one was prepared for this. So I doubt that there was any malicious intent in releasing this um, intentionally. I don't know if Sachs' report says that, but you no, know, no, who's investigating just what? It's plausible that it may have originated. I think there is not a accusation. Who of financed intent. what and how? Uh, you know that. Anyway, me, so I can't comment because I have not read the report. For me, what I think is more interesting about it is how the narrative can be seized by both sides for their own economic interests. So, so but from the, problem, the ambiguity at the heart of who caused COVID, because obviously everyone's looking for a scapegoat, everyone's looking for someone to blame. Americans, you know, the West can like go, ha, it was China. And that could, in a scenario of propaganda and like uh, social media um, enacted sort of viral mechanics whip up the population to justify a war against China. That's my concern. But similarly, the Chinese can leverage the narrative via this ambiguity to say it was the Americans. So both sides, I think, benefit. Like if, if you're worried about autocracy, both sides benefit from the narrative because of its ambiguity because you can use it against each other. I agree with you that that's dangerous, and I also worry that uh, it's um, you know to, to have this divorce, if we sort of use a yeah. you know that analogy amicably, is going to be extremely hard, uh, and it certainly doesn't help what we talked about earlier, the fact that in the autocratic system it's become eco chambers, and in our system. It's become uh, politicians unable to make judgment calls and, and have conviction. Um, About anything. <laughs> um, so, so that is a really interesting way to put it because that is like we're totally sclerotic in some way, whereas they're very decisive but wrong. So, like that's that is a good sort of. It's like almost like two parts of a of a brain. You know, you've got your. Um, yes, yeah, Could you have some more water? Just tap water, tap water please. Water, 
Um, um, it's yes. almost like two parts of the brain. Like, you know, you've got your creative brain and then your ordered kind of like brain. And the system is sort of devolving into these two areas of interest. And, um, and I'm very against putting everything uh, to the extremes. And I think the effort certainly um, in the West should be to, to find ways to bring people together not to exploit the extremes and not to fan the extreme flames. I mean, admittedly, you know, neither you nor I are in a position of power in the sense of policy making. So, of course, it's easier to give this, you know, talk about this, give advice, actually then, you know, um, taking one of these jobs is, is a totally different ball game. I realize that. And so I don't, I don't attempt to speak with, with any... Uh, but speaking of power, because there was a point you made about the surveillance state, which I thought was very interesting, which is that if everyone moves against the surveillance state at the same time, power is transferred to the people. So, But your point was more about, at least how I interpreted it, was that as if people remain atomized, uh, the surveillance state... Um, has power over you, but so so she is vulnerable if there is ever, ever a kind of like seren. Thank you very much. A um, put a little bit here, please. Uh, in the tea, yes. Just because it's so warm. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, and for you. No, I'm fine. Thank you. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that the surveillance state has a vulnerability it's if everybody like realizes at the same time that there is i mean you and i have lived in these regimes it's so difficult to achieve that like the situation has to be dire for this to happen especially with the modern levels of technological uh, advancement that can be used for control so, um, you know, I don't know, maybe our generation is lost. Maybe it's our kids that we have to, to think about. And you too, it was excellent, especially the pulpo. Yeah, it was I so you, good. Uh, well, it's all the men if you come on the spread. So every cook we cook at the moment, that's what's very nice. Yes, yeah, very this menu we're up with for 1966, we're going to 45 years, same menu. So, oh, uh, wow. yeah, the chef, the chef 35 years working here, so, you know. Ah, yeah. well. Are you the first time in the restaurant? No. I, you as well, Mother. I, I've been uh, quite a few times, so, but uh, I think maybe... It it's the first one for first me, time. actually. Okay. So, obviously, at least once a month, yeah? <laughs> and I don't live very far away, and I'm oh. definitely bringing my Italian friend I was telling oh, yeah. you about. Okay, okay. Yes. Right. So, thank you very much. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you. Um, I love these sorts of Italian restaurants. They're very... You know, uh, with the, with the, just to describe for listeners, it's the sort of restaurant that has like the photos on the on the wall, which seems to be a, a an Italian sort of tradition in, in family-run restaurant. Yes, but not of celebrities, just no. of family. Family and ordinary mustachio, people. Mustachioed Italians. It's, uh, it's very, it's very like, uh, porcini or truffle hunting. I don't know. Um, it's very, very, very typical, but very good. Um, yes, very much. Can can we um, get the bill as well? Of course, madam. But um, so what is so just to finish because we we're now running out of time. We're at the end of our lovely lunch. I feel like we have to do part two because we've only scratched the periphery. Um, but we've had a good overview. 
But what is the one thing that you, you know, looking ahead, what is the one thing that investors need to be mindful of? Yeah. I mean, the thing with is, respect to China, I think with respect to China, because, um, and I understand why it's not easy to sort of focus on three million things simultaneously and trying to, you know, so you focus on one thing. Mm -hmm. uh, the number one thing uh, to think about uh, from a Chinese point of view is to um, realize that if, as we expect, she will be crowned leader for life, then the direction, he'll double down on the direction he's taking China in. And that brings with it a very different economic um, a sort of backdrop to global growth, i.e. China is not going to uh, be able to to be in any shape or form uh, a growth engine for the rest of the world and it introduces heightened geopolitical risk with respect to Taiwan uh, and those of course interact with each other. So. It seems that... Um, Do you think there will be a um, confrontation there with Japan? I mean, at the moment, our assessment on a... Three to four-year horizon is 75% likelihood of a military confrontation between China and Taiwan involving the US. Mm. So this is the number one risk globally. And it is a dynamic, so it no longer is in anyone's hands. So it's not, it's, the timing is not in Xi's hands and the timing is not entirely in America's hands. It's a dynamic between the two and of course with Taiwan in the middle. I have spoken to you in the past before, and I think early in this lunch, that what I try to do always is to, you know, because there's so many things going on all the time, is trying to identify what is the key driving force that is going to determine absolutely everything else, like from which everything else will fall out. To me, it is this US-Chinese uh, confrontation, because, you know, if you are a person who, you know, you think logically it should be the environment, <laughs> should be this ecological disaster we're all facing. We might both be here as humans, you know, in however many years' time. But even that falls out, and what we do with respect to that falls out from this Sino-US confrontation. So everything falls out from that. And it's very hard to see how uh, the two will, will be able to split. I mean, actually, if it wasn't for Taiwan, it probably would have been easier, uh, but you know we are not there. We do have Taiwan, and um, and that is why, an intractable problem. I guess why I think for for a layperson, it's very hard to understand why it's so essential for China to bring Taiwan into the Chinese fold. It's an issue of honor. It's an issue of ideology, an issue of promise. You know, it's unfinished business for the Communist Party. Um, there is sort of no way the party can turn back and say to the people, um, you know what, we thought about it, but now it's too difficult, so let's let it go. Is it the case that they can't see themselves being a global power and influencer if they've still got this annoying wart of um, kind of 
I mean, resistance over in Taiwan. That as well. Uh, but what has happened also, which is another dangerous development, is that um, they have stoked nationalism so much in the general population that now when Nancy Pelosi visited, the population in China was disappointed with China's response. They thought it should be bigger. Uh, and so it's become a two-edged sword that uh, sometimes, or let's say on the Indian border, when there were skirmishes between the Chinese and the Indians, the, Chi the Indians were reporting the number of dead, and the Chinese were not reporting the number of their so that dead. That brings you back to the cultural aspect of it, and like um, the self-belief in oneself is so... I mean, you don't get that sort of patriotism in the West. I mean, it's quite unfashionable to be... Uh, yes, I mean, now but you certainly get it in India, different. in Russia. Yeah. Um, so, so yes, maybe it is more uh, a, a lot less so in the U.S. But, but I wouldn't say that the U.S. is not. Well, I think it depends on what side of the. I mean, the, the, what the U.S. is so polarized that I think you know the right wing would see itself as nationalistic, but not not the left. Wing. Yes. No. So in China. Um, this this is now a double-edged sword. The authorities have used nationalism so much and stoked it so much that now they are beholden to a popular uh, revolt or discontent with respect to international developments. It kind of created a monster potentially. It's the it's the ultimate like power struggle between. I guess direction from a top-down elite uh, versus the power of the masses. Yes, uh, I fear that uh, that's also a dynamic that we have to worry about. Well, thank you, Diana. Um, we'll call it a day on thank the recording Thank you, Izzy, too. And the blind spot. Thank you. And that lovely octopus. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you, everybody. Bye. That was Leaked Lunch with Isabella Kaminska, brought to you in association with Haya, the pseudonymous whistleblowing app. For more on what happens when finance and media intersect with reality, check out The Blindspot at www.the-blindspot.com. <laughs>